Disc 13. On the numbers migrating to Britain, and the consequences for the population of non-whites living in the country, Powell's figures, which were much ridiculed at the time, were not far out. Just before his 1968 speech, he suggested that by the end of the century, the number of black and Asian immigrants and their descendants would number between five and seven million, or about a tenth of the population. According to the 2001 census, the relevant figures were 4.7 million people identifying themselves as black or Asian, or 7.9% of the total population. Though, with large-scale illegal immigration since then, the true numbers are certainly higher. Immigrants are far more strongly represented in percentage terms as well as raw numbers in London and the English cities than in Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. It can also be argued that Powell did British democracy a kind of service by speaking out on an issue which had been up to then cloaked in elite silence and so provoking a debate which needed to happen at some time. Against that, his language still feels shockingly inflammatory and provocative nearly 40 years later. He was talking just after the formation of the racist and fascist National Front in 1967, and though Powell himself was anti-Nazi and indeed had returned from Australia on the outbreak of war to fight the Germans, his words attracted the enthusiastic support of the would-be Gauleiters of provincial Britain. Further, his core prediction of civil unrest comparable to that suffered in the southern states of the United States had not come about. Five notable outbreaks of inner-city rioting since then, and a rise in street crime linked to disaffected youths from Caribbean and other immigrant communities, do not add up to the conflagration he predicted. Immigration has changed Britain more than almost any other single social event in post-1945 Britain. More than the increase in longevity, or the pill, the collapse of deference, or the spread of suburban housing. The only change which eclipses it is the triumph of the car. It was not a change that was asked for by the white population, though the terms and circumstances of 50 million people choosing suddenly to ask such a question are impossible to imagine. The majority of British people did not want the arrival of large numbers of blacks and Asians, just as they did not want an end to capital punishment or deep British involvement in the European Union or many of the other things a political elite has opted for. At no stage was there a measured and frank assessment of the likely scale of immigration led by party leaders voluntarily in front of the electorate. And while allowing this change by default, the main parties did very little to ensure that mass immigration from the Caribbean and the Indian subcontinent was successful. West Indians got none of the help and forethought lavished on the demobilized Poles, or even the less adequate help given to the Ugandan Asians. There was no attempt to create mixed communities or avoid mini-ghettos. Race relations legislation did come, but late, and only to balance new restrictions. It simply castigated racialism in the white working-class community rather than trying to understand it. So this is another example of Britain's history of rule by elite, of liberal politicians acting above their electorates. The real question is whether this neglect of public opinion and then of the consequences of immigration, not least for the immigrant families, has produced a better or worse country. The sense, flavours, controversies and rawness of Britain in the 21st century divide the country from its former self. It is not just those who have come, but the huge numbers of white British who have left to South Africa, Australia, Canada and New Zealand well over half a million in the 60s alone. Britain has become a world island, a little America, despite itself. Having once acquired an empire in a fit of absent-mindedness, the British have become multicoloured in much the same way. With new migrations from Eastern Europe, Iraq, Somalia and Ethiopia, it is now clear that this is a far bigger story than simply a tidying up after empire. Floating. If Heath is associated with a single action, it is British entry into Europe. But throughout his time in office, the economy, not Europe, was the biggest issue facing him. British productivity was still pitifully low compared to the United States or Europe, never mind Japan. The country was spending too much on new consumer goods and not nearly enough on modernised and more efficient factories and businesses. 
Prices were rising by 7% and wage earnings by double that. This was still the old post-1945 world of fixed exchange rates, which meant that the Heath government, just like those of Attlee and Wilson, faced a sterling crisis and perhaps another devaluation. It is hard to describe quite how heavily, how painfully, relative economic decline weighed on the necks of politicians of 30 and 40 years ago. The unions, identified by Heath as his first challenge, had just seen off Wilson and Barbara Castle. Heath had decided he would need to face down at least one major public sector strike, as well as removing some of the benefits that he thought encouraged strikes. Britain not only had heavy levels of unionisation through all the key industries, but also, by modern standards, an incredible number of different unions, more than 600 altogether. Leaders of large unions had only a wobbly hold on what actually happened on the factory floor. It was a time of political militancy, well caught by the 1973 hit from the folk rock band The Straubs, who reached number two with their anthem, Part of the Union. Its chorus ran, Oh, you don't get me, I'm part of the union. And different verses spelt out why. With a hell of a shout, it's out, brothers, out. And I always get my way if I strike for higher pay. So though I'm a working man, I can ruin the government's plan. And so they could. Almost immediately, Heath faced a dock strike, followed by a big pay settlement for local authority dustmen. Then a power worker's go slow, which led to power cuts. Then the postal workers struck. The mood of the government was less focused and less steely than it would be nine years later when Margaret Thatcher came to power. Douglas Hurd, later seen as a wet in her cabinet, was Heath's political secretary at the time, and recorded in his diary his increasing frustration. A bad day. It is clear that all the weeks of planning in the civil service have totally failed to cope with what is happening in the electricity dispute, and all the pressures are to surrender. Later, Hurd confronted Heath in his dressing gown, warning him that the government machine was moving too slowly, far behind events. Things were so bad in the car industry that Henry Ford III, with his right-hand man, Lee Iacocca, came to warn Heath that they were thinking of pulling out of Britain entirely. Yet, Heath's Industrial Relations Bill of 1971 was meant to be balanced, giving new rights to trade unionists, while at the same time trying to make deals with employers legally enforceable through a new system of industrial courts. It was the Tories' first stab at the kind of package which had been offered to the unions by Wilson. There were also tax reforms, meant to increase investment, a deal with business on keeping price increases to 5%, and even some limited privatisation. The travel agents Thomas Cook and Lund Polly were then state-owned and sold off, along with some breweries. But the Tory messages were still, to put it gently, mixed. Cuts in some personal taxes encouraged spending and inflation. With European membership looming, Barber, Heath's Chancellor, was dashing for growth, which meant further tax cuts and higher government spending. Perhaps the most significant move in the long term was the removal of lending limits for the high street banks, producing a vast surge in borrowing. Lending had been growing at around 12% a year already, but in 1972 rose by 37%, and the following year by 43%. This obviously fuelled further inflation, but it also gave a fillip to the ancient British fetish for house ownership and borrowing. The huge expansion of credit and the unbalanced amount of capital sunk in bricks and lawns in modern-day Britain can be traced back partly to this decision, then the new credit boom of the Thatcher years. It is not even mentioned in Heath's memoirs. At the same time, one of the historic constraints on British governments had gone. In the summer of 1971, President Nixon unilaterally tore up a key part of the post-war financial system by suspending the convertibility of the dollar for gold and allowing exchange rates to float. His problem was the awesome cost of the war in Vietnam, though it would cost only 60% in real terms of the later post-September 11th conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, combined with rising commodity prices. The effect on Britain was that the government and Bank of England no longer had to be quite so obsessed by sterling reserves, though this remained a problem until 1977. But it opened up new questions about how far down sterling could go and how industrialists could be expected to plan ahead. 
Heath's instincts on state control were quickly tested when the most valuable parts of Rolls-Royce faced bankruptcy over the cost of developing new aircraft engines. Heath briskly nationalised the company, saving 80,000 jobs, and allowed it to regroup and survive, to the relief of the defence industry. Rolls-Royce duly did revive and returned to the private sector, making this a clear case of one nationalisation that, with hindsight, clearly worked. Into Europe with the peasants We have seen how deeply the cause of Europe had marked Heath, and how hard he had struggled as a negotiator in the early 60s in the face of President de Gaulle's non. He had done the time, served in the tobacco-smoked rooms, haggled over the detail. As a keen European, he knew his French partners better than any other senior British politician. Long before winning power as Prime Minister, he had identified Georges Pompidou, who replaced de Gaulle as President, as his likely interlocutor. At a meeting at Chequers, Heath later revealed, Pompidou had told him, in French, If you ever want to know what my policy is, don't bother to call me on the telephone. I do not speak English, and your French is awful. Just remember that I am a peasant, and my policy will always be to support the peasants. This was fair warning about the vast expense of the common agricultural policy, but it was not a true reflection of Pompidou's wider vision. In fact, he wanted a Europe of large manufacturing companies able to take on the United States and the Far East. By 1970, after a decade during which Britain had grown much more slowly than the six members of the common market, Heath was in some ways in a weaker position than Macmillan had been. On the other hand, Heath had some advantages. He was trusted as a serious negotiator. Britain's very weakness persuaded Paris that this time les Rospifs were genuinely determined to join. Pompidou also thought the time was right. A oui would get him out of the great dead general's shadow. France, like the rest of the community, had for years been struggling to understand what Britain really wanted. This had been particularly difficult in the Wilson years, when the British left had been riven by the issue. Heath had only promised to negotiate, not to join. His enthusiasm, however, was in total contrast to Wilson's wiggling. The best historian of Britain's relations with the rest of the EU described the difference between the two. It probably mattered quite a lot to the direction of later events that in early September 1939, as Ted Heath was making it back to Britain from Poland by the skin of his teeth before war was declared, Harold Wilson was motoring to Dundee to deliver an academic paper on exports and the trade cycle, and that later, while Heath was training to run an anti-aircraft battery, Wilson became a potato controller at the Ministry of Food. Yet opinion polls suggested that Heath's grand vision was alien to most British people, and that the former potato controller's warnings about prices had much more effect. With Heath in power, over 18 months of haggling in London, Paris and Brussels, a deal was thrashed out. It infuriated Britain's fishermen, who would lose most of their traditional grounds to open European competition, particularly from French and Spanish trawlers. It was the second best deal on the budget, which would later be reopened by Margaret Thatcher. Above all, it left intact the previous common market, designed for the convenience of French farmers and Brussels-based bureaucrats, not for Britain. Vast slews of European law had to be swallowed whole, much of it objectionable to the British negotiators. Only at the very margins, dealing with New Zealand butter, for instance, did the six make concessions. And the Commonwealth Farmers' Deal was won at the expense of a worse agreement on the budget. The truth was that the British negotiators had decided it was essential to the country's future to get in at any price. At a press conference at the Elysee Palace in Paris in 1971, Heath and Pompidou, after a long private afternoon of talks between just the two of them, language notwithstanding, revealed to general surprise that so far as France was concerned, Britain could now join the community. Heath was particularly delighted to have triumphed over the media, who had expected another non. Now there would have to be a national debate about the terms of entry and a vote in Parliament. But, in opposition, Wilson was playing true to form. When Heath began negotiations, as we have seen, Wilson was a publicly declared supporter of British membership, but the tactical Wilson soon displaced the statesman. As British accession loomed, he cavilled and sniped. As ever, he was looking over his shoulder. Jim Callaghan, a potential successor, was campaigning openly against Europe, 
partly on the grounds that a French-speaking institution threatened the language of Chaucer, Shakespeare and Dickens. The left was in full cry. A special Labour conference in July 1971 confirmed how anti-EEC the party had become, voting by a majority of five to one against. Labour MPs were also hostile by a majority of two to one. Wilson now announced that he would oppose British membership on the Heath terms. He was not against it in principle, he insisted, just here and now. After the long and tortuous journey, this disgusted the Labour pro-Europeans. It did not much enthuse the Labour anti-marketeers who simply did not believe Wilson's apparent change of heart and assumed he would sign up if he returned to number 10. So even Wilson's great cause, Labour unity, was lost. When the Heath proposals for membership were put to the Commons, 69 Labour pro-Europeans defied the party and voted with the Conservatives. They were led by Roy Jenkins, though to his later embarrassment he did not continue voting against his party on every detail. The left, led by Barbara Castle, Michael Foote and Ben, were livid with the rebels. A divide which would eventually lead to the breakaway SDP was just beginning to be visible. For the Labour conference majority, staying out was a matter of principle. For the 69, going in was a matter of principle. Forms of words, pious evasions and bluster might patch over the cracks in opposition, but this quite clearly had the potential to destroy Labour should it return to power. Caught between the moral self-belief of the Castles and Bens and the steely self-certainty of Jenkins, Wilson protested to the Shadow Cabinet that I've been waiting in shit for three months so others can indulge their conscience, and threatened to quit as party leader. They can stuff it as far as I'm concerned. It was only a tantrum, but as he struggled to hold things together, the left-wing new statesman delivered a withering verdict on the principal apostle of cynicism, the unwitting evangelist of disillusion. Mr Wilson has now sunk to a position where his very presence in Labour's leadership pollutes the atmosphere of politics. After winning his Commons vote on British membership of the community, Heath went quietly to Downing Street to play Bach on the piano in a mood of triumph. For the Labour Party, it had been a dreadful night, with screaming matches in the voting lobbies and ghastly personal confrontations between the 69 rebels and the rest. The hero of the hour turned out to be Tony Benn, then herring leftwards at a keen lollop. Tony immatures with age, said Wilson, but on this issue he proved a lot shrewder than the Labour leader. Ben began to argue that on a decision of such importance the people should vote in a referendum. His constituency was in Bristol, whence the great 18th century MP and writer Edmund Burke had sent a letter to his electors explaining that he owed them his judgment, not his slavish obedience to their opinions. In a reversal of the argument, the other Bristol MP argued instead that a democracy which denied its people the right to choose a matter of such importance directly would lose all respect. To begin with, Ben had almost no support for this radical thought. Labour traditionalists despised referendums as fascist devices, continental jiggery-pokery not to be thought of in a parliamentary democracy. Though at this stage Ben was ambivalent about the common market, pro-Europeans also feared this was the first move towards committing Labour to pulling out. Harold Wilson had committed himself publicly and repeatedly against a referendum. Slowly and painfully, however, he came to realise that opposing Heath's deal but promising to renegotiate while offering a referendum could be the way out. This could be sold to the anti-marketeers as a swerve against Europe, but the pro-marketeers would realise he was not actually committed to withdraw. And the referendum promise would gain some political high ground. He would trust the people, even if the people were, according to the polls, already fairly bored and hostile. When Pompidou suddenly announced that France would have a referendum, Wilson snatched at the Ben plan. It was an important moment. The referendum would make the attitude of the whole country clear, at least for the 70s. It was to be a device used again by politicians faced with particularly important or tricky constitutional choices. A Dream Disintegrates On the afternoon of May Day 1971, John Evans, the manager of the hugely popular Kensington boutique Bieber, walked nervously downstairs into the basement. 
There had been a series of outlandish phone warnings about some kind of bomb, which to start with had simply been ignored by the girl on the till. Outside on the street were some five hundred women and children who had by now been hurriedly evacuated. When Evans pushed open the door of the stockroom, there was an almighty bang, a flash of flame, and a billow of smoke. The Angry Brigade, Middle England's very own terror group, had struck again. In their communique explaining the attack, they misquoted Bob Dylan: "If you're not busy being born, you're busy buying." And went on. All the salesgirls in all the flash boutiques are made to dress the same and have the same makeup. Life is so boring. There's nothing to do except spend all our wages on the latest skirt or shirt. Brothers and sisters, what are your real desires? Sit in the drugstore, look distant, empty, bored, drinking some tasteless coffee. The only thing you can do with modern slave houses, called boutiques, is wreck them. What they did not seem to realise, except for a cadet enthusiast, Erin Pitsey, who broke with them over their Bieber plan and later went off to found women's refuges instead, was that its customers found Bieber not oppressive, but liberating. There are hundreds of dates and events you could pick to date the end of the sixties dream, but the Bieber bombing has a piquancy all of its own. Two of the main forces behind the flowering of youth culture were at war. On the one side is the fantasy of revolution, anarchist or Leninist according to taste, the world of Che Guevara on the wall and obscure leftist handbooks by the bed, promising a world in which Starbucks would never have got started. On the other side is the fantasy of benign hippie business as part of the consumer culture, the world of eyeliner, cool clothes, and gentle people making money. The two organisations, Bieber and the Angries, sum up much of the underlying argument of sixties youth culture. The small group of university dropouts who made up the grandly titled Angry Brigade would go to prison for ten years after one hundred and twenty-three attacks, and are little remembered now. But they were the nearest Britain came to an anarchist threat. They took their philosophy from two counterculture theorists, the Frenchman Guy Debord. And the Belgian poet and teacher Raoul Venechim, who argued that capitalism and Soviet communism were equally repressive. All organisations were eventually taken over by capitalism, which turned everything into a commodity for sale. Even attacks on capitalism could be marketed and sold. Witness all those commercially produced Che Guevara badges and posters of Mao. Debord, in particular, extended his attack from old-style communists, Western politics, the media, and other familiar targets to the drug-taking hippie culture, modern architecture, even tourism. Once people had so many things they were bored of simply possessing, then capitalism would sell them experiences too, such as foreign travel and nostalgia. So the situationists, as they called themselves, resolved to attack targets such as shopping centres, museums, and the media. Where scandalous activity might provoke repression and therefore help the scales to drop from people's eyes, they staged a little revolution at Strasbourg University, where they took control of the student union and mocked their contemporaries for merely pretending to be radical, while actually being seduced by clothes, discs, scooters, transistors, purple hearts, proving them to be merely conventional consumers. It was a shrewd assessment of what would happen to most radical students. Debord himself was almost a caricature French intellectual. He was disdainful of Anglo-Saxon culture, committed to fine food, drink, free love, and philosophical conversation. His work had been badly translated and spread among students in Britain. At Croydon Art School, it had influenced a group calling itself King Mob after graffiti used by the mob in a London riot in 1790. A belief in anarchy and disorder was spread by this and other groups in magazines and handbills, whose scrawled writing and cut-out letters look remarkably like the punk fanzines of the seventies. This is not coincidental. Among the British admirers of the Situationists was the young art student Malcolm McLaren, later the creator of the Sex Pistols. Notes for a film he wrote in 1971, insisting. The middle classes invented the commodity. It defines our ambitions, our aspirations, our quality of life. Its effects are repression, loneliness, boredom. Could have come from an angry brigade communique of the same time. When McLaren and Vivian Westwood opened their clothes-to-shock shop in Kings Road, they were producing just the rebel imagery dreamed of by political rebels a few years earlier.
punk in England in the 70s had roots in what happened in Paris in 1968. Nothing might have followed de Boer's calls to revolution in London had it not been for another European influence, this time dating back to the Spanish Civil War. Anarchists who continued small-scale guerrilla attacks on the Franco regime had developed the key techniques which would later be copied by terrorist groups from the IRA to the Bader-Meinhof group, indeed to Al-Qaeda, the use of a cell structure to make the group harder to break, and public communiques issued to the mainstream media with code words to explain their actions. They were a little more serious. From 1966, the 1st of May group was carrying out machine gun attacks and small-scale bombings across Western Europe. Within a few years, they were in contact with British admirers, in particular former students from Cambridge and Essex universities. At Essex, a new and bleak place then, Anna Mendelssohn from a girls' high school in Stockport and Hilary Creek from a private school in Bristol had been eagerly watching the 1968 revolt. So, over at Cambridge, had John Barker, from the posh Haberdashers Asks School, a journalist's son, and Jim Greenfield, a lorry driver's son from Widnes in Cheshire, studying medicine. They had studied the Situationists and joined the Kim Philby Dining Club in honour of the university's most famous traitor. All of them committed radicals. They got to know each other through communes and the squatting movement in London, then threw themselves into the claimants' union, an organisation set up to try to extract maximum welfare payments for as many people as possible, and successful enough to have 80 branches across the UK by 1971. Through a young Scottish anarchist called Stuart Christie, who had spent three years in a Spanish prison for his part in a bungled plot to blow up General Franco, the University Quartet, a strikingly handsome group, made contact with the 1st of May group. With others, including a petty criminal and heroin addict called Jake Prescott, and a Vietnam solidarity campaign activist called Ian Purdy, they began to make and use bombs. As well as Bieber, their targets included the Miss World contest at the Albert Hall, a Spanish airline plane at Heathrow, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir John Waldron, the site of the new Paddington Green Police Station, where IRA and Al-Qaeda suspects would later be held, the Police Computer, a Territorial Army Centre in Holloway, the home of the Chairman of Ford in Britain, a Rolls-Royce showroom in Paris, and two Conservative Cabinet Ministers, the Trade Minister, John Davies, and the Employment Secretary, Robert Carr, who was struggling to get Heath's trade union legislation through Parliament, and whose white stuccoed home was hit by two bombs, one at the front door and one at the back. In all these attacks, no one was actually killed, and just one person, a bystander, was hurt. The Angry Brigade issued regular communiques under names from films such as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or The Wild Bunch and announced that their targets had been selected for execution. They would take on high pigs, judges, embassies, spectacles, property, they said, and attack the shoddy alienating culture pushed out by TV, films and magazines, the ugly sterility of urban life. After nine months, the Angry Brigade were picked up by the police after a trip to Paris to collect gelignite. Raiding their squats, guns and bomb-making equipment were discovered, and all the key players were given long prison sentences. The judge blamed their actions on a warped misunderstanding of sociology, and the English Revolution was again postponed for lack of interest. The violent fringe of protest would continue, but always over secondary issues such as Scottish and Welsh nationalism and the Irish Troubles. Though in many ways the Angry Brigade were a non-event, they represent the only direct confrontation between revolutionary protest, supposed to be one of the key ingredients of the 60s, and the evolving economy of pleasure, which was the 60s real story. Other left-wing groups, mainly Trotskyists, would argue with each other, and march, protest and publish about employment and foreign affairs. Revolutionary protest was only felt in its full force in Ireland. Bloody Sunday Heath had worked closely with the Taoiseach, Prime Minister of the Irish Republic, Jack Lynch, and the new Stormont leader, Brian Faulkner, who, as a middle-class businessman by origin, was more in Heath's image than the old Etonian landowner Chichester Clark had been. Eventually, he had even managed to get the leaders of the Republic and Northern Ireland to sit and negotiate at the same table something that had not happened since partition in 1920. 
A measure of the intricate diplomacy required was that Heath served a bottle of Paddy's whisky from the Republic at Lynch's end of the table and Bush Mills made in Ulster at Faulkner's with a bottle of scotch between them and considered it a significant sign when they both opted for scotch. Chichester Clark had simply demanded more and more troops, more and more repression, but Faulkner was open to a political solution. Inside Downing Street, three options were being studied. Northern Ireland could be carved into smaller, more intensely Protestant areas, with the rest surrendered to the Republic, thus effectively getting rid of many Catholics. Or it could be ruled by a power-sharing executive, giving Catholics a role in government. Or finally, it could be governed jointly by Dublin and London, with its citizens having joint citizenship. Though Heath rejected the first option because it would be crude and leave too many people on the wrong side of borders, and the last one because the Unionists would refuse it, his second option would be followed by the British governments that followed him. A fourth option, advocated by Enoch Powell, who continued his political odyssey by becoming an Ulster Unionist MP, was that the UK should fully incorporate Northern Ireland into British structures and treat it like Kent or Lincolnshire. But this was never taken seriously by Heath. His readiness to discuss other radical solutions gives the lie to the idea that London was pig-headed or unimaginative. But before he had a chance to open serious talks, the collapsing security situation had to be dealt with. Now, politics shriveled. If there was one moment when the troubles became unstoppable, it was the 30th of January, 1972. Bloody Sunday, when troops from the Parachute Regiment killed 13 unarmed civilians in Londonderry. Ordered in from Belfast to put a stop to stone-throwing bogside demonstrators, they erupted into the Catholic ghetto and began firing, as it turned out, at unarmed people, many of them teenagers. Some were killed with shots to the back, clearly running away. It was the climax of weeks of escalation. Reluctantly, Heath had introduced internment for suspected terrorists. Reprisals against informers and anti-British feeling meant that the normal process of law was entirely ineffective against the growing IRA threat. So, despite the damage it would do to relations with other European countries and the United States, he authorised the arrest and imprisonment in Long Kesh, of 337 IRA suspects. In dawn raids, 3,000 troops had found three-quarters of the people they were looking for. Many were old or inactive. Many of the real Provo leaders escaped south of the border. Protests came in from around the world. There was an immediate upsurge in violence, with 21 people being killed in three days. The bombings and shootings simply increased in intensity. In the first eight weeks of 1972, 49 people were killed and more than 250 seriously injured. This was the background to the events of Bloody Sunday, which, despite endless continuing inquiries and arguments, remains disputed territory. Who shot first? How involved were the IRA in provoking the confrontation? Why did the peaceful march split and stone-throwing begin? Why did the paratroopers suddenly appear to lose control? Whatever the answers, this was an appalling day when Britain's reputation was damaged around the world. In Dublin, ministers reacted with fury and the British embassy was burned to the ground. Bloody Sunday made it far easier for the IRA to raise funds abroad, particularly in the United States. The provost hit back with a bomb attack on the parachute regiment's Aldershot headquarters, killing seven people there, none of them soldiers. The violence led to yet more violence, and by degrees to the imposition of direct rule by London and the no-jury Diplock courts. In July 1973, 20 bombs went off in Belfast, killing 11 people. Mainland Britain became a key Provo target. In October the following year, five people were killed and 60 injured in attacks on Guildford pubs, and in December, 21 people were killed in pubs in Birmingham city centre. Assassinations would follow, of Tory MPs such as Airy Neave, Mrs Thatcher's close adviser, and Ian Gow, her popular former parliamentary private secretary. Vocal opponents of the IRA, such as Ross McGuirter, would be gunned down, and in 1975 a couple in London's Marylebone were taken hostage by an IRA gang in the Balcombe Street siege. Later IRA spectaculars included the murder of Lord Mountbatten of Burma when boating with his family in Sligo in 1979, 
and culminated in the attempted assassination of Mrs. Thatcher and her cabinet in Brighton in 1984. The troubles in Northern Ireland itself would see endless tit-for-tat car bombings and shootings, routine murder, torture and kneecapping of suspected informers, and a quiet, steady migration of ambitious people from the province. The security services would break the law in their desperate search for suspected terrorists. Dirty protests involving the smearing of excrement on cell walls and fatal hunger strikes would be used by Republican prisoners in their war against the British state. Within a few years, what had been essentially a policing role by the British Army, separating Protestant bigots from rebellious Catholics, had become a full-scale terrorist or counter-insurgency war, with all the paranoia, the kidnappings, the apparatus of repression, and the corruption of political life that it brings. In his last attempt to avert what was coming, Heath believed he needed to persuade Dublin to drop its long-standing constitutional claim to the North, and to persuade mainstream Unionists to work with Catholic politicians. He failed, but not through want of trying. His first Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, a new job made necessary by direct rule, was the bluff, amiable Willie Whitelaw. He met provisional IRA leaders, including Gerry Adams, for face-to-face -face talks, a desperate gamble which, however, led nowhere. There was no compromise yet available. So, ignoring the IRA... The Sunningdale Agreement proposed a power-share executive with six unionists, four SDLP members and one from the non-sectarian Alliance Party. There would also be a Council of Ireland, bringing together politicians from Dublin and from the North, with authority over a limited range of issues, in return for Dublin renouncing authority over Northern Ireland. It was an ingenious, multi-sided deal, not so different in essence from what was later proposed by John Major and Tony Blair in the 90s. But too many Unionists were implacably opposed to it, and the Moderates were routed at the first 1974 election. Meanwhile, in the Republic, its leader's renunciation of the territorial claim to the North was declared unconstitutional and illegal. Heath concluded with understandable bitterness. Ultimately, it was the people of Northern Ireland themselves who threw away the best chance of peace in the blood-stained history of the six counties. Authority undermined. Then the miners struck. At the beginning of 1972, the National Union of Mine Workers began their first national strike since the dark days of the 20s, pursuing a pay demand of 45%. The government, with modest coal stocks, was quickly taken by surprise at the discipline and aggression of the strikers. A young, unknown militant, a miner from Woolly Colliery, organised some 15,000 of his comrades from across South Yorkshire in a mass picket of the Saltley Coke Depot, on which Birmingham depended for much of its fuel. Arthur Scargill, a rousing speaker, former Communist Party member and highly ambitious union activist, later described the confrontation with Midlands Police at Saltley as the greatest day of my life. Soon he would be catapulted up as agent, then president of the Yorkshire Miners. Heath blamed the police for being too soft. Scargill's greatest day was, for the Prime Minister, the most vivid, direct and terrifying challenge to the rule of law that I could ever recall emerging from within our country. We were facing civil disorder on a massive scale. It was clear to Heath that the intention was to bring down the elected government, but he decided he could not counter-attack immediately. Confronted with the prospect of the country becoming ungovernable or having to use the armed forces to restore order, which public opinion would never have tolerated, Heath turned to a judge, Lord Wilberforce, for an independent inquiry into miners' wages. From his point of view, it was a terrible mistake. Wilberforce said they should get well over 20%, nearly 50% higher than the average increase. The NUM settled for that, plus extra benefits, in one of the most clear-cut and overwhelming victories over a government that any British trade union has ever enjoyed. Heath and his ministers knew that they might have to go directly to the country with an appeal about who was in charge, but before that, they tried a final round of compromise and negotiation. Triggered by the prospect of unemployment hitting one million, there now follows the famous U-turn, which afterwards so scarred Heath's reputation. It went by the ungainly name of tripartism, 
a three-way national agreement on prices and wages, investment and benefits involving the government, the TUC and the CBI. The Industry Act of 1972 gave a Tory government unprecedented powers of industrial intervention, gleefully cheered by Tony Benn as spade work for socialism. There was much earnest wooing of moderate trade union leaders. Money, effort and organisation went into job centres as unemployment rose steadily towards a million. The industrialists did as much as they could, sitting on yet more committees, when in truth they might have been more usefully employed trying to run their companies. The unions, however, had the bit between their teeth. By first refusing to acknowledge Heath's industrial relations court as really legitimately a law of the land, and then refusing to negotiate seriously until he repealed the act, they made the breakdown of this last attempt at consensual economics inevitable. Within a year, the CBI too would be calling for it to be scrapped. By now, Heath had leaned so far to try to win the unions over that he was behaving like a Wilson-era socialist. He was reinstating planning, particularly regional planning. He was bailing out failed companies, such as Upper Clyde Shipbuilders, partly because of the work in discussed elsewhere, something Heath later believed was a mistake. He was offering the unions a privileged place in the running of the nation. From his perspective, this was a last attempt to run the economy as a joint enterprise of British patriots in which individual roles, trade union leader, company director, party politician, took second place behind a general belief in the common good, the wider politics of by British. Individuals followed the logic of their own interests instead. Trade union leaders had got their jobs by promising their members higher wages and better conditions. They could hardly be blamed for doing everything they could within the law to carry out the role they had been given. Industrialists, similarly, would live or die by profit margin and return to investors. They were not auxiliary politicians. Thatcherites later criticised Heath's government for doing things which a government ought not to do and not doing things it ought to. Governments should not try to run businesses or do the wage bargaining of trade union officials and companies for them. They should not tell factories where to go. They should not attempt to control prices. All these things, said Tories of ten years later, were better left to the market. What government should do instead was set tough and clear rules by which the other forces in society had to live. Government should ensure low inflation by controlling the supply of money. It should enforce strong laws against intimidation or law-breaking at work. It should allow firms that fail to suffer the consequences. Overall, the Thatcher critique has been applauded, not simply in Britain, but around the world, and Heath's tripartism, or corporatism, has been derided and forgotten. Yet, he started with an almost identical view to her later one. He had been an enthusiast for letting the market decide prices. He promised not to let lame ducks survive. At the time, Thatcher was his fervent supporter, and even her outrider, Sir Keith Joseph, only converted to a full free market philosophy in the middle of the 70s, after the fall of the Heath government, in which he had been a notably high-spending minister. The argument between the two sides of the Conservative Party was not one between toffs and the hard-nosed middle classes, or ordinary people, as many Thatcherites would later claim. Heath was no toff, and his nose, though famously Concord large, was as hard as any. Heath was blown off course by a political version of the impossible storm that later wrecked his beloved yacht, Morning Cloud. Much of the country was simply more left-wing than it was later. The unions, having defeated Wilson and Castle, were more self-confident than ever before or since. Many industrial workers living in still bleak towns far away from the glossy pop world of the big cities did seem underpaid and left behind. After the Macmillan, Douglas Hume and Wilson experiences, politicians did not have the automatic level of respect that they had enjoyed when Heath had first entered the Commons. Heath always argued that he was forced to try consensus politics because in the 70s the alternative policy, the squeeze of mass unemployment which arrived in the Thatcher years, would simply not have been accepted by the country. And given the very rocky ride Mrs Thatcher had a full ten years later, after industrial and some social breakdown had softened the way for her radicalism, he was surely right. What finally finished off the Heath government 
was the short war between Israel and Egypt in October 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Israel's swift and decisive victory was a humiliation for the Arab world, and it struck back using oil. OPEC, the organization of the oil-producing countries dominated by the Saudis, had seen the price of oil rising on world markets for some time. They decided to cut supplies to the West each month until Israel handed back its territorial gains and allowed the Palestinians their own state. There would be a total embargo on Israel's most passionate supporters, the United States and the Netherlands. And those countries which were allowed oil would pay steadily more for it. In fact, prices rose fourfold. It was a global economic shock, shoveling further inflation into the industrialised world, but in Britain it arrived with special force. The miners put in yet another huge pay claim, which would have added half as much again to many pay packets. Despite an appeal by its leader, the moderate Joe Gormley, the NUM executive rejected a 13% pay increase and voted to ballot for another national strike. These were the days, just before North Sea oil and gas were being produced commercially. Britain could survive high oil prices, even shortages, for a while. The country could hold out against a coal strike for a while. But both together added up to what the Chancellor, Barber, called the greatest economic crisis since the war. It certainly compared to that of 1947. Coal stocks had not been built up in preparation. Now a whole series of panic measures were introduced. Plans were made for petrol rationing and coupons printed and distributed. The national speed limit was cut by 20 miles per hour to 50 miles per hour to save fuel. Then, in January 1974, came the announcement of a three-day working week. Ministers solemnly urged citizens to share baths and brush their teeth in the dark. Television, by now the nation's sucky suite, was ended at 10.30pm each evening. It is remembered as the darkest day, literally, in the story of mid-70s Britain. And it was an embarrassing time in many ways. Yet it also gave millions an enjoyable frisson, the feeling of taking a holiday from everyday life. The writer Robert Elms recalls that though this proud nation had been reduced to a shabby shambles, somewhere between a strife-torn South American dictatorship and a gloomy Soviet satellite, Bolivia meets Bulgaria, a banana republic with a banana shortage. The reality, of course, is that almost everybody absolutely loved it. They took to the three-day week with glee. They took terrible liberties. Heath and his ministers struggled to try to find a solution to the miners' claim, though the climate was hardly helped when Mick McGahey, the legendary Scottish Communist Mine Workers leader, asked by Heath what he really wanted, answered, to bring down the government. Much messing about with intermediaries and many mixed messages, not least from the government's own pay board, ensured that no effective compromise could be found. When the miners voted, 81% were for striking, including those in some of the most traditionally moderate areas in the country. In February 1974, Heath asked the Queen to dissolve Parliament and went to the country on the election platform he had prepared two years earlier. Who governs? The country's answer, perhaps taking the question more literally than Heath had hoped, was, not you, mate. Harold Wilson had expected the Tories to win again, and began the campaign in a depressed mood. A year earlier, in opposition, he had prepared his own answer to inflation and the unions, the so-called social compact, or social contract. Agreed jointly between the union leaders and the Labour shadow cabinet, it was essentially a return to the politics of the 40s, with price controls, a complex system of food subsidies, direct redistribution of wealth, controls on housing and investment, and the end of the Tory union laws. In return for this Attlee-age manifesto from the politicians, the unions gave vague promises of voluntary pay restraint. It was a one-way deal, but it was in Wilson's interest to pretend that he could find practical agreements where Heath could not. It was in the union's interest to pretend they were signing up to a new era, if that would help expel the Tories and destroy their legislation. Outside observers saw it more plainly as a recipe for inflation which also offered the TUC a privileged place in government in return for very little. But what was the alternative? The three-day week was not, it later turned out, quite the economic disaster it seemed. Industry had maintained almost all production, which shows how inefficient five-day working must have been, and relatively few jobs had been lost. 
but politics is half symbol, and Heath's authority had gone. In the election campaign, a public fed up of chaos and desperately looking for good news clutched at the social contract. Wilson was able to appear as the calm bringer of reason and order. This time, he was lucky as well. A slew of bad economic figures arrived during the campaign. Enoch Powell, Heath's ancient nemesis, suddenly announced that he was quitting the Conservatives over their failure to offer the public a referendum on Europe and called on everyone to vote Labour. A mistake by the pay board suggested that the miners were in fact relatively lower paid than had been recognised. And a surge in Liberal support, which took them from single-figure support to the backing of a quarter of those voting, turned out to help Labour more than the Tories. All this helped produce a late surge in Wilson's favour. By the end of the campaign, he had recovered some of his old chirpiness and bounce. Having decided that Heath should not rule, however, the country seemed unsure that Wilson should either. Though Labour had won the most seats, 301 against the Conservatives' 297, no party had an overall majority. Heath hung on, trying to do a deal with the Liberal leader, Jeremy Thorpe, who had 14 MPs, but eventually conceded defeat. Rather fatter, greyer, and more personally conservative than he had been ten years earlier, Harold Wilson was back. So, Mick McGahey and friends had brought down the Heath government, with a little help from the oil-toting Saudi royal family, the Liberals and Enoch Powell. A more bizarre coalition of interests is hard to imagine. Edward Heath's three and three-quarter years in number ten will be remembered for the three-day week, a rare moment when politics actually shakes everyday life out of its routine, and for taking Britain into Europe. But other important changes happened on his watch too. The school leaving age was at last raised to 16, to cope with international currency mayhem caused by that Nixon decision to suspend convertibility the old Imperial Sterling area finally went in 1972. The pill was made freely available on the National Health Service. Local government was radically reorganised, with no fewer than 800 English councils disappearing and huge new authorities, much disliked, being created in their place. Heath defended this on the basis that the old Victorian system could not cope with the growth of car ownership and of suburbia, which were undermining the distinction between town and country. Many others saw it as dreary, big-is-better dogma. There was more of that when responsibility for NHS hospitals was taken away from hundreds of local boards and passed to new regional and area health authorities at the suggestion of a new cult, then just emerging, management consultants. Political cynicism had been provoked in the 50s and 60s by the behaviour of the cliques who ran the country. By the 70s, it was driven more by a sense of alienation. To many older Britons, these were years of out-of-control change. Much of the loathing of Heath on the right of politics came from British membership of the common market, which seemed the ultimate emblem of this rage for bigger and untraditional systems. Decimalisation was almost as big a change to daily life. Though the original decision had been taken in 1965 during the first Wilson government, the disappearance in 1971 of a coinage going back to Anglo-Saxon times was widely blamed on Heath. Away flew the florins and half-crowns, halfpennies, farthings and sixpences. Away went all the intricate triple-column mathematics of pounds, shillings and pence. And in came an unfamiliar, if more rational, decimal currency. Where would this end? Negotiators in Europe specifically fought to maintain the British pint measures in beer and milk, and the mile continued to keep the kilometre at bay. But, in the 70s, the familiar seemed everywhere in retreat. Wilson At least Wilson was familiar. His February election victory meant he was governing without a Commons majority. He was trying to do so at a time when the economy was still shaking with the effect of the oil price shock, with inflation raging, unemployment rising and the pound under almost constant pressure. Further, the fragile and implausible social contract now had to be tested. Almost the first thing Labour did was to settle with the miners for double what Heath had thought possible. The chances of the new government enjoying easy popularity were nil, 
though at least an opposition so internally divided between bruised conservatives, liberals, nationalists, and Northern Irish unionists was unlikely to combine often to defeat it. The new Chancellor, Dennis Healy, introduced an emergency budget a few weeks after the election, followed by another in the autumn, during which he raised income tax to 83% at the top rate, or 98% for unearned income, a level so eye-wateringly high it was used against Labour for a generation to come. In the spirit of the social contract, Healy also increased help for the poorest, with higher pensions and housing and food subsidies. He was trying to deliver for the unions, as Wilson did in abolishing the Conservative employment legislation. For the time being, Heath remained as Tory leader, despite some grumbling from the party. He was convinced that before long, Wilson would have to call a second election, and his chance for revenge would arrive. In October, however, the second election confirmed the earlier verdict, with Labour gaining 18 seats and a precarious but quite workable overall majority of three. The fetid atmosphere of Wilson's new government was like that of the mid-sixties, only more so. Marcia Williams still had him mesmerised. As one young number 10 aide recalled, her dramatic and sometimes destructive power was not only exercised through her bewitching domination of the Prime Minister himself, once launched against any human obstacle or perceived personal enemy, her frenzied tirades were very impressive and virtually ungovernable. It was alleged that she would swear and curse like a trooper at Wilson, storm out of dinners and meetings, and threaten him with terrible revenge if he crossed her. Some sources claimed that in opposition she had locked all his personal papers in a garage and refused to let him see them. Desperate to write his account of the 1964-1970 governments, Wilson had been forced to team up with her brother Tony, break into her garage and steal them back, although only the three of them would know if this were true. Now she gave him a new problem when a press furore broke about land deals. The brother, a geologist, had bought slag heaps and quarries and then moved into land speculation, falling in with dodgy Midlands businessmen. There was a forged letter purporting to come from Wilson. There was no evidence that Marcia knew of the deal, but the close connections between Marcia and her brother and the Prime Minister began a media frenzy, which prefigured many of those directed at the Labour ministers of the 90s and early 2000s. Wilson stood by his inner circle while the attacks rose in intensity, eventually making Williams a peeress, Lady Faulkner. This was described by one of Wilson's biographers as a magnificently arrogant gesture, contemptuous of almost everybody. And the whole experience broke forever his once good relations with the press. The old rumours about links with Russian intelligence and affairs resurfaced, and the mood of bitterness and paranoia inside Number 10 was as grim as anything in the equally harassed administrations of John Major and Tony Blair. In another way, however, Wilson had changed. He interfered far less and seemed less worried by the manoeuvrings of his ministers. He wasn't planning to stay long. There are many separate records of his private comments about retiring at 60 after another two years in power. If he had not privately decided, finally, that he would go in 1976, he certainly acted as if he had. The question of who would succeed him, Jenkins or Callaghan, Healy or even Ben, had become one about the direction of the Labour government, rather than a personal threat to Harold Wilson. So there was less rancour around the cabinet table. Wilson was visibly older and more tired. He seems likely to have known about the early stages of Alzheimer's, which would wreak a devastating toll on him in retirement. He forgot facts, confused issues, and repeated himself. For a man whose memory and wit had been so important, this must have been a grim burden. There is therefore no need to assume that dark forces, some netherworld of MI5 plotters and right-wing extremists, finally removed him from power with threats of blackmail and dirty tricks. Wilson himself was as fascinated as ever by security service plotting and had Marcia Williams dig out files on Jeremy Thorpe's lover, Norman Scott, to try to show that he was being framed by the South African Secret Service, Boss. At other times, he would suggest Israel's Mossad were after him. In a famous interview given to two BBC reporters, 
Barry Penrose and Roger Courtier after his retirement, he claimed that right-wing officers in the security service had been plotting against him. Wilson's state of mind is vividly evoked by his fantastical language to them. I see myself as the big, fat spider in the corner of the room. Sometimes I speak when I'm asleep. You should both listen. Occasionally, when we meet, I might tell you to go to Charing Cross Road and kick a blind man standing on the corner. That blind man may tell you something, lead you somewhere. The Cecil King plot of 1967, and later memoirs by a wild MI5 man, show that Wilson's fears were not completely groundless, but this sounds like the raving of a deluded old man. The Stairs Were on Fire If Roy Jenkins had in many ways been the most important minister during the mid-sixties, it was Dennis Healy who dominated public perceptions of Labour in the mid-seventies. As a Chancellor of the Exchequer during the worst economic storm of post-war times, through both the Wilson and Callaghan governments, he rivalled each of them as a public icon. His scarlet face, huge eyebrows and rough tongue were endlessly caricatured and mimicked, above all by the TV impressionist Mike Yarwood, who invented You Silly Billy as Healy's catchphrase, one quickly taken up by the Chancellor himself. Healy was one of the most widely read, cultured, intelligent and self-certain politicians of modern times, whose early communism, active war service and vast range of international contacts helped mulch and decorate his famous Beyond Politics hinterland. But there was little poetry, relaxation or fun about the job he took up in 1974 and would hold through near farcical crises and grim headlines for the next five years. He described the economy he had inherited from Heath and Barber as like the Orgean stables. Much of his energy would be thrown into dealing with the newly unstable world economy, with floating currencies and inflation-shocked governments. In effect, after the great devaluation argument of the first Wilson administration, this one was quietly devaluing all the time, as the pound sank against the dollar. Where were the levers of control? Healy was taxing and cutting as much as he dared, but his only real hope was to control inflation by controlling wages. Wilson insisted that an incomes policy must be voluntary. After the torture and defeat of Heath, there must be no going back to legal restraints. The unions, under the leadership of men who had risen as shop stewards in the Great Revolt of the 50s and 60s, the Spanish Civil War veteran Jack Jones, the wily and cynical Hugh Scanlon, and the grammar school boy and ex-communist Len Murray, became increasingly worried that rampant inflation might destroy Labour and bring back the Tories. So, for a while, the social contract did deliver fewer strikes. From 1974 to 1975, the number of days lost to strikes halved, and then halved again the following year. Contrary to popular myth, the 70s were not all about mass meetings and walkouts. After Heath had been beaten, the real trouble did not start again until 1978-79. But the other half of the social contract was meant to deliver lower wage settlements, and that was an utter failure. Despite Labour delivering on its side of the bargain, by the early months of 1975, the going rate for increases was already 30%, a third higher than inflation. By June, inflation was up to 23% and wage settlements even further ahead. The union suggested a new deal of a cash limit of an extra £6 a week for most workers. The government did introduce an element of compulsion, but targeted employers who offered too much, not workers who demanded too much. Yet persuading people not to make deals about pay is extremely difficult. It cannot last long in a free society. There will always be special cases, and one special case inspires the next. Healy reckoned two-thirds of his time was spent trying to deal with the inflationary effects of free collective bargaining, and the rest with the distortions caused by his own pay policy. As he reflected later, adopting a pay policy is rather like jumping out of a second-floor window. No one in his senses would do it unless the stairs were on fire. But in post-war Britain, the stairs have always been on fire. By refusing to allow companies to pass on inflationary wage increases as higher prices, and by endless haggling with union leaders who were themselves alarmed about the fate of the country, Healy did manage to squeeze inflation downwards. He believed that if the unions had kept their promises, it would have been down to single figures by the autumn of 1975. In all this, 
Healy was under constant pressure to show that he was delivering for socialism. He could not spend more. So he sent what signals he could by skewing the tax system dramatically against higher earners, concentrating any tax cuts on the worse off. Though notorious for warning that he would make the rich howl with anguish and often misquoted as promising to squeeze the rich until the pips squeak, Healy argued that it would be the only way of making the country fairer. He never accepted the conservative argument that high taxes stopped people working harder and blamed Britain's poor industrial performance instead on low investment in industry, poor training and bad management. A villain and bogeyman for many in the middle classes, Healy did at least suffer from his own policies. As a result of my tax changes and my determination to prevent ministerial salaries from rising as fast as the pay norm, my own real take-home pay as Chancellor fell to only half what I'd been earning as Defence Secretary, although I was working harder and longer. Referendum Wilson carried out his promised renegotiation of Britain's terms of entry to the EEC and then put the result to the country in the Ben-inspired 1975 referendum. The renegotiation was largely a sham, but the referendum was a rare political triumph for that bleak decade in the story of Westminster. On the continent, the reopened talks were understood to be more for Wilson's benefit than anything else. Helmut Schmidt, the new German Chancellor, who travelled to London to help win round the Labour conference, regarded it all as a successful cosmetic operation. Wilson had needed to persuade people he was putting a different deal to the country than the one Heath had won. This he was able to do, though when the referendum actually arrived, Wilson's old evasiveness returned, and he mumbled vaguely in support rather than actively or enthusiastically making the European case. There were plenty of others to do it for him. To preserve longer-term party unity, he had allowed anti-Brussels cabinet ministers to speak from the No platform, and Barbara Castle, Ben, Peter Shaw and Michael Foote were among those who did so, in alliance with Enoch Powell, the Reverend Ian Paisley, the Scottish Nationalists and others. But the Yes campaign could boast most of the Labour cabinet, with Roy Jenkins at the front, plus most of the Heath team and the popular Liberal leader Jeremy Thorpe. It seemed to many people a fight between wild-eyed ranters, the outlandish and the discontented on the one hand, and sound chaps on the other hand, men and women with that curious but apparently essential British quality, bottom. More important, perhaps, was the bias of business and the press. A CBI survey of company chairmen found that out of 419 interviewed, just four were in favour of leaving the community. Almost all the newspapers were in favour of staying in, including the Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph and Daily Express. So was every Anglican bishop. A fight between the establishment and its critics was funded accordingly. Britain in Europe, leading the Yes campaign, outspent the No camp by more than ten to one. In this grossly unequal struggle, both sides used scare stories. Britain in Europe constantly warned of a huge loss of jobs if the country left the community. The No Camp warned of huge rises in food prices. Yet this was also an almost carnival-like participatory argument of a kind post-war Britain has rarely known. There were meetings, several thousand strong, night after night, around the country. Proper meetings with hecklers and humour. Despite miserable weather, including a showering of June snow... There were stunts of all kinds, and the country seemed covered with posters. The spectacle of politicians from rival parties who normally attacked one another, sitting down together, agreeing, was a tonic to those watching. End of Disc 13